A few years ago, the Barna Group, a Christian research firm, published a book called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And this book shared the conclusions of some nationwide surveys that were done examining how non-Christians see Christians. And I want to share a little bit of what they found Based on the self-reporting of Christians, which was part of this, they found that Christians cuss less in public. Not much less in private, not around Nana, just in public. They found that Christians give a little bit more to the poor. Uh, They found that Christians give more money to religious nonprofits. And on the whole, uh, Christians buy fewer lottery tickets. So that's all super encouraging. Um, We're really putting Jesus on display in those areas. But they also found that Christians are just as likely to visit a pornographic website as those who are not, just as likely to get drunk, just as likely to do illegal drugs or to take prescription meds not prescribed to them, just as likely to be willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation just as likely to have intentionally does something to get back at someone within the last 30 days. Just as likely to have said an unkind word about someone behind their back in the last 30 days. Now, I'll be candid with you. I'm usually a little suspicious of surveys like this, but, but Barna is a, a Christian organization. They, they take doctrinal integrity seriously and, and What I've just told you pretty much all comes from the self-reporting of Christians, you know, telling honestly, anonymously how they live. And when I know things like this, it really isn't all that surprising to see Barna report that 84% of non-Christians said they knew at least one Christian personally, but only 15% of them thought that that person's lifestyle was significantly different than their own. Now, some of us right now here in church on Sunday morning may be reflexively thinking that it's the media's fault or it's the fault of the educational systems or it's the fault of politicians that are all biased against Christianity. And yes, that's true. The world is biased against us. TV shows and movies and social media routinely mischaracterize, routinely villainized Christians. Christians are routinely depicted as hate-filled and uptight and repressive and ignorant and hypocritical. And need I remind you, Jesus, our Lord, said that they will hate us. You know, this week, in the wake of an unspeakable tragedy in Nashville, we have seen, as part of everything that's unfolded, some of that animosity on display. Maybe you've read about it, the different parts of Media, some pundits trying to distort what happened in a way that ends up actually blaming the people who were murdered so that these people could protect their own views on morality. And so, yes, the distortion, yes, the hate, it, it is real. But I want to ask us a question this morning. This is us, right? We're family. Shouldn't we own that we are at least partially responsible for some of this perception. It's a good place for an amen, but that's okay. <laughs> See, far too often, isn't it true that far too many of us 
live in ways that don't honor Jesus, our, our Lord. And we can, often, we can often try to make excuses for other people who name the name of Christ, but more often, isn't it true that we make excuses for us, for our own sins? That's what Paul is talking about as we get into Romans chapter two. He's showing us that religion is often just a very thin veneer papered over our heart that's just as sinful as everyone else's. And he's showing us that religion by itself is powerless to change the heart. It might change some external behaviors, but really nothing deeper if it's just religion. Now, if you've been tracking these last few weeks, you've heard me tell you for weeks now that Paul is building a case for why we need the gospel, for why our only hope is God's gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe you remember from chapter one, verse 18, all the way to chapter three, verse 20, Paul is demonstrating, building the case to show the sinfulness of the human race. In the last couple of weeks, as we looked at verses 18 to 32 in chapter one, we've seen Paul painting this this graphic picture of the sinfulness of the the Gentile or the, the pagan world. But now he's gonna turn the spotlight in a more personal direction. Paul is going to show in Romans 2 how even religious or spiritual or moral people, good people, even we need the gospel every bit as much as the pagans. And he's heading to his conclusion in Romans 3, which we'll take a look at after Easter, where he's going to assert that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. See, what Paul is telling us in Romans 2 is that religious or irreligious, we all have only one hope, and that is the gospel of God. We all have no excuse, no excuse, even though, isn't it true, that all of us have this propensity to excuse and to rationalize and to explain away and to blame others for our own sin. Now, we're, we're going to be today covering an entire chapter today, all 29 verses, and so you're gonna have to listen very quickly, and if this takes too long, as always, it's your fault, it's not mine. Um, but what I want to do today is show you three reasons uh, from Romans 2 why we all have no excuse before God, even those who see ourselves as spiritual or moral or religious, we're gonna read the, the text as we make our way through it. And so let me give you the first reason and then we'll read the first paragraph. Uh, our, the first reason we have in no excuse is our hypocrisy. Our hypocrisy. As Paul opens Romans chapter two, he, he anticipates an objection that will come from his religious hearers. Remember, Paul knows that this letter is gonna be read to the churches in Rome and there's gonna be Jewish Christians there as well as Gentile Christians listening alongside him, and he knows there are gonna be some things happening as his letter is read, and so he uses a literary device in Romans 2 called diatribe, where he imagines someone listening to him who says back to him, amen, Paul, amen, you tell him, Paul, those Gentiles are messed up, all that idolatry, all that violence, all that sexual disorder, all that societal chaos, what a mess. And Paul says in chapter two, verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment, 
on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse three, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Then the first thing the Apostle Paul tells spiritual and moral people like us is this. We will have no excuse because of our hypocrisy. See, Paul is pointing out a tendency that we all have, and it is this And if you can't handle this, if you can't admit it to yourself, that's the problem. We all have a tendency to condemn in others the very things we condone in ourselves. See, Paul has just been cataloging all these ways that pagan people suppress the truth and unrighteousness and exchange the glory of God for a lie, doing all, all these kinds of sinful things. And Paul says God's wrath stands against them. They deserve to die. That's what it says in the last verse of Romans 1, verse 32. And, and Paul knows that if some people are listening to this letter being read, they're gonna be feeling pretty righteous about right now. They're gonna be, they're gonna be feeling pretty good about themselves. And so he turns and he says, stop, stop your judgmental hypocrisy because you condemn yourself when you practice the same things. Have you realized this about yourself? Have you realized that we all have a tendency, virtually every person I've ever known, and that includes me, we see ourselves in a much more positive light than we do other people. Ever notice that? We excuse ourselves all the time. See, we, we, we excuse ourselves all the time and until we begin to deal honestly with this tendency in our lives, we're never gonna grow spiritually the way God wants for us. See, Paul is not saying here, so don't get, get confused. He's not saying here that every good or moral or righteous person does every single one of these sins he listed in the last part of, uh, of chapter one, but he is saying that we all do some of them and he's right. Can you say amen to that? He's right. And sometimes, don't we do some of them while we are condemning other people for doing the very same things? See, Paul is pointing out that some people are openly depraved and sinful, but some people are secretly depraved and sinful. Sometimes, the very person amening the sermon the loudest, condemning certain sins, is secretly doing those very sins. And I've seen that happen time and time again in my decades of being a pastor. And Paul says, we're gonna be judged. Now, we need to be clear in our 21st century culture that Paul is not saying they will be judged because they judge, okay? That's not at all. Uh, What he's saying is you will be judged because you're doing the same things you judge other people for. That's why you're gonna be judged. I mean, think about it. Paul's not prohibiting judging here. If if, if we're gonna be judged for judging, then Paul's in trouble because there's a whole lot of judging going on here in Romans, right? And you see it? I mean, that's pretty much all he's doing in Romans 1 and 2, judging, 
And, and also, if you read more of his writings, 1 Corinthians 2.15, Paul actually tells us that we are to judge all things as, as believers. In other words, that, that we are to judge in the sense of agreeing with God about what is right and about what is wrong. So these people are not in trouble you know, for telling Gentiles that their sin is wrong. They're in trouble because they're condemning Gentiles for doing the same things they condone in themselves. Look at what Paul says again in verse two. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But then he asks this piercing question in verse three. Let it sit on your soul. He says, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? It's like what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, just saying amen to God's judgment on others doesn't give you immunity from God's judgment falling on, on you. We, we should examine ourselves always to see where we are self-righteous, where we are hypocritical. And, and again, I wanna ask the question, why is it that we think the best of ourselves so easily we see the faults in others? Why can we so quickly defend our sin while we so quickly criticize the sin in others? Why do we so often not take our own sin seriously? Now, I'll be honest with you. This is, this is like an ongoing occupational hazard for a pastor, okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but there is kind of a sense in which you pay me. It's like my job to judge. Sort of like it's part of what I do. You know, I'm supposed to open God's word and I'm supposed to show people how it applies to the sin in our lives, but it is so very easy for someone who stands in this place where I'm standing to begin to think that all the sin is out there and not to think about all the sin that's in here. In fact, I'll just say it, that's something you should pray for me, that that won't be the case. It's the same kind of thing that can happen to you as well. It's the same kind of thing that, that is, Jesus is talking about. If you go to Luke chapter 18, where he tells this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee, they've gone to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is praying, and he's saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like those people. Thank you, God, and I'm not like that tax collector. And then Jesus says the tax collector can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. All he can pray is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says it's the second man, the tax collector, who goes do his house justified. See, Paul wants us to see how easy it is for us to be self-righteous hypocrites, even when we know Jesus. We will not be immune, he says, from the rules to which we hold others accountable. And so Paul is saying, if we're thinking we're right with God because our religion, because we go to church, because we read the Bible, because we give some money to the church, because of our moral goodness, Paul is telling us that we should know the moral high ground is not a safe place when it comes to the judgment of God. He then asks a, a second stinging question, and I hope we feel its force. Verse 
2. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you presume on God's kindness? Do you misunderstand his forbearance and patience? Do you think that today, that because God has not judged you yet for the sins that you are committing, that he will never judge you, that you will always escape God's wrath? Do you think that? See, they're not only blind to their own hypocrisy. He says they're making a mockery of God's kindness and patience. See, the fact that God has delayed his judgment should not lead you to presume you're all okay, should not allow you to stay stubbornly in your sin. What it should lead you, this patience and kindness to, is a repentant heart. In verse five, Paul says that Those who presume on his kindness are gonna get hardened hearts, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this phrase, storing up, is kind of an ironic phrase here because it's drawn on the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew phrase, uh, storing up, is always about, in the context of storing up blessing and storing up riches for the life to come. And Paul takes that phrase and he turns it and he says, you are storing up wrath for yourself and on the day of God's wrath that wrath will come crashing down on your heads I mean think about all the the rain and the snow we've gotten in our state and the reservoirs are getting full and that water is building up higher and a lot of people are worrying right now aren't they about whether it gets warm too quickly and whether the rivers are going to flood and what's going to happen the destruction Paul says the water is building up The wrath of God is accumulating. And one day, eventually, God is gonna release the dam. It's gonna spill over the top. And then, if you haven't repented, the flood of God's judgment will overtake you. I wanna ask you some questions. These are just questions for us to think through. Big questions are good to write down and just take with you through the week. Maybe pray about these questions, just you sitting before the Lord. Here's the first one. When you see sin in others, does it drive you to self-righteousness? You shake your head, you wag your finger, or does it make you look in the mirror? Are you more like the Pharisee who says, thank God I'm like them, or like the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me? A sinner. You know, we talk a lot in Christian circles about the, the sinner's prayer, which like leads to salvation. But you know, that's, that's the real sinner's prayer. The real sinner's prayer is God be merciful to me. And it's not just to be prayed, this sinner's prayer, at the beginning of the Christian life. It has to be the continual prayer of the Christian life as we continually repent and confess our sins to God because God is faithful and God is just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Second question, in what ways are you a hypocrite? Notice, I didn't phrase this question, are you a hypocrite, yes or no? That is not a question, all right? And if you think it is, that's part of the problem. The question is, in what ways are you a hypocrite? Everyone is, but in what ways do you do this? Do you ever say you love a certain person or love a certain group of people, and yet you don't know anybody like that? Do you, do you uh, ever say that you want to see the end of human trafficking? Like, or, or maybe you're angry about the incursion of homosexuality into every part of our society, and yet you consume pornography, 
See, what are the ways we demonstrate hypocrisy? Third question, do you presume on God? Do you ever face a temptation and find yourself thinking, you know, I could do this because if I do it, I can just come back later and ask God to forgive me because that's his job. I know he has to forgive me. See, that's a dangerous game. And we need to remind ourselves repeatedly that God does not owe any of us any of his forgiveness. Final question, what's the purpose of God's kindness? See, why do you think God is kind? Is God kind so you can have a happier life? Maybe, maybe a bigger house, maybe a better job, maybe an easier life? Or is God's kindness primarily to help make you look more like Jesus? See, which in turn means to lead you to a place where you admit that you need his grace. She, see, we should see the power and the thunder of God against the hypocrite in this passage. And we, we should see the mercy of God as well. Because the end of the hypocrite's story, praise God, does not have to be a hardened and penitent heart. See, God is showing us his kindness every day. Over and over and over again, he gives us hypocrites a chance to turn and repent, to change our minds, to humble our hearts, to see the wickedness of of our hypocrisy, to cry out to God, have mercy on me, to repent of sin and turn to Christ. He is giving us those opportunities every day. Are you taking those opportunities To put this kind of in a human analogy, this can be like the husband who has offended his wife. Probably happened all across this room this week, right? And he has two options. He can either stay proud and harden his heart against her. He can refuse to ask for forgiveness and say that he's sorry. Or he can soften his heart and humble himself and go to her and say, I am sorry, will you please forgive me? And God is saying the heart that stays proud is the heart that will be judged. The heart that says, will you forgive me, is the heart that finds mercy. And so if you understand God's kindness and forbearance and patience, it leads you to have humble hearts that are willing to ask forgiveness. Humble hearts. And we need that, don't we? I mean, a little bit of humility and a little bit of repentance changes the world, doesn't it? Years ago, the uh, author Francis Schaeffer gave a a great illustration that I I, I think helps us understand a bit about what's going on in this passage. He, He talks about people having an invisible tape recorder around their neck, okay? And now, I know I have to stop here and explain to some of you, like, you, you don't know what a tape recorder is. Because, see, we used to have these little things called cassette tapes, and you, you would put them in these other little things called Walkmans and, or boomboxes, and you would, like, listen to music. It was how we made mixtapes back then. And, and uh, maybe some of you just need to think like this. Just, just imagine, your whole life is Instagram Live. Your whole life, okay? Does that resonate with some of you? He says, imagine you have a recorder around your neck. It records everything you say about others. And imagine that on the last day before the judgment seat of God, God takes that recorder and God says to you, I'm going to judge you only according to the way you judged others. I will judge you and hold you accountable only to the standards you used on other people. Here's the question. Are you already scared? (laughs) Do you think, oh man, 
Do you think, oh woman, that you will escape God's judgment on that day if that's all that God judges you by? Can you live up to that standard? And Paul's point is no, you could not. You could not. Well, that's the first reason we have no excuse because of our hypocrisy. The second reason is God's impartiality. And we see this in verses 6 to 16. In verses 6 to 11, Paul tells us first that we are judged based on our work. God's impartial. He just judges us based on what we do. That's our accountability. Here's what he writes, verse 6. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Paul is introducing here a, a theological concept called soul competency. And essentially, this just says that, that everyone is gonna be judged individually. It's not about what your family or what your church or what your people group you know, has done. Each of us will stand individually before God to give an account of our lives. And it's kind of an interesting thing. This is what's called a, a chiasm. And, and that's a, a Greek word that reflects the letter X. And so there's this kind of crossing uh, of what he's talking about. In verse seven and then in verse 10, he's one thing. In verse eight and nine, it's another. And he says, we have two motives for our works. In verse 7 and 10, it focuses on those who seek God's glory, first motive, through patience and well-doing. In other words, we're seeking to live lives of obedience. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see a second motive, self-seeking, a people who, a striking phrase, who obey unrighteousness. So you either live, Paul says, for what God created you for, which is his glory, or You live selfishly for your glory. God's glory, your glory, one or the other. And the first path, Paul says, leads to eternal life. The second path, your glory, leads to wrath and fury. Now, if you're like a lot of us, you have probably read these verses, and maybe right now you're hearing them and you're thinking, wait, this sounds like Paul is saying we earn our right standing with God. Anybody read that and think, is that maybe what he's saying? Is that true? Maybe you're asking. And the way it's written at first glance, it might make us think that, but just think about what Paul is writing in this entire letter. For that to be true, that Paul's saying we earn our salvation, Paul would have to be contradicting what he has just said back in Romans 1, that the gospel is about God's gift righteousness to us. It would also be contradicting what he's about to say in Romans 3 and Romans 4, and just keep going. So it cannot mean that. I think that what Paul is doing here is describing the kind of life that true Christ followers live. You see, when a, when a person truly trusts in Christ alone for salvation, their life will give evidence of that trust, of the righteousness God has given them. And they won't be perfect, of course. They will sin. They will stumble. But over the course of their life, they will persevere in obedience. This patience, Paul says, in well-doing. This is evidence that God has truly changed them. This is what John Piper says about these verses. God does indeed give eternal life to those who persevere in obedience. Uh, 
Not because disobedience is perfect or because it is the basis or the merit of eternal life, but because saving faith always changes our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit so that true believers persevere in doing good. In other words, a changed life of obedience to God's truth is not the basis of eternal life, but the evidence of authentic faith that unites us to Christ, who is the basis of eternal life. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with what I'm saying here? Someone has said, I think very aptly, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So the question these verses ask is which path are you on? A path leading to eternal life or a path leading to wrath and fury? Are, are you living an others-focused life or a self-focused life? When you do good, do you do it so people will notice for your glory? Or you just do the right thing because you want to glorify God? See, uh, Romans 2 is a powerful warning against spiritual complacency. It is a wake-up call, and I hope the Spirit of God is waking some of us up right now. Maybe, maybe God's impartiality right now is, is an alarm clock that's ringing for your soul. See, you need to ask yourself, we all do regularly, do you have a life that perseveres in good works? Are you treasuring God in Jesus Christ and treasuring his word that he's given to you to reveal his heart, treasuring him in, in prayer, treasuring Jesus. Do you love Jesus and is Jesus your soul's beauty? See, ultimately, that's what this is about, treasuring Christ. And Paul is saying here, if you do that, what awaits you is glory and honor and peace. Not shame, but honor. Not distress, but peace. So what are you seeking? We all, we all know we, we live in a selfie generation, but you know the truth is every generation has always been a selfie generation. We, we just have more ways to show that today. I heard a stat this week. Don't really know the source, but it sounds right. It's this. 60% 60, 60 of teens today think they will be famous one day. Uh, teenagers, that's all the old people laughing right there because <laughs> we know. <laughs> See, the truth is, and listen to this, we are actually wired by God to desire glory, to desire honor, to desire immortality. It's part of the image of God. And these are good things to seek, Paul is telling us, but he's also telling us the only way you'll ever find them is in Jesus. That's the only way. In verse 11, Paul sums it all up, says God shows no partiality. In other words, God is always, always fair. He always has been, he always is, he always will be. And if you ever wonder if God is gonna be fair to you or anyone else, Paul would tell you the judge of the earth always does what is right. And in eternity, no one will be able to claim that he missed, that God somehow like missed calling that foul on my team that, that, that would have kept us you know, winning the game. He, he missed that. Or, or like he called a strike when it really was a ball or something else like that. You know, Here's the thing, God never misses a call. He's always fair. 
In fact, if you go to verses 12 and 15 through 16, it tells us that we are gonna be judged by this standard that we possess, whatever that is. It's an indication of God's impartiality. He writes, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, Paul is just showing this, the impartiality mentioned in verse 11. It just means that every person is gonna be judged based on the, quote, law that we have. See, people who don't have the word of God, they're gonna be judged apart from that law. People who have sinned under the law, having the word of God, are gonna be judged by that law. And what we all have in common, Paul is saying, is this, we've all sinned, we've all failed, we've all rebelled, we've all disobeyed, we all stand under the judgment of God, doesn't matter. And we may be people who, like the Jewish people, did have access to God's written revelation in his word, so God will judge us by that, or we may have only the law written on our hearts, which is this principle of conscience that everyone has. You don't have to teach anyone that it's wrong to murder. We all know that, right? That's because the law of God is written on our hearts, the image of God we're made in. And so either way, whatever law we have, we all know we violate it, and therefore we all have no excuse. God is always fair. No excuse. That brings us to the, the third reason we have no excuse, and that is our privileges. Now, Paul is specifically in these last parts, in this last part of the chapter referring to Jewish people, but you can pretty much replace this for our context with you and me, people that know Jesus, because we slot in so much at this point in time to this place, and I think you'll see that as we go. Beginning in verse 17, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, in the rest of Romans 2, as I just said, Paul is clearly addressing Jewish believers, but I think you can already see hearing this, that what he's saying applies uh, to those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, and he is making it so clear that not even the privileges we have as God's people gives us an excuse. 
And, and just think about it. Today, uh, those of us who are in Christ, we have not only the, the privileges of God's Old Testament word that they had, we also possess the infinite privilege of knowing God the Father through Jesus the Son, having the Holy Spirit living within us to guide us and teach us. We have that privilege. We have, Second Peter 1, 3 says, everything we need for life and godliness. We have it all. But our privileges, Paul says, must not make us complacent. Now, what Paul does in verses 17 to 22 is he, he lists 10 things, and they're all blessings, and they're kind of in two sets of five, and, and these are all really good things. They're all special. They're statuses that they have. They're privileges they possess, um, but they have become, Paul says, the, the soil in which self-righteousness grew. The first five things, the first set of five, it relates to their blessings as God's people. You can just kind of check them off, maybe underline them. At first, they rely on the law, verse 17. See, the law gave them their identity after their exodus from Egypt, and the law was a means of spiritual blessing, just like the law, the word of God blesses our hearts, right, when we read his word. Second, they, they boast in God, and this is a good thing. Jeremiah 9, 24 to 27 says we are to boast in the Lord and his mercy and kindness to us. Third, know his will. They had the blessing of knowing who God was and what God wanted from them. Other nations didn't have that. Fourth, approve what is excellent. In other words, God's commandment gave them and taught them the very best way to live. And then fifth, he says, instructed from the law. And that really kind of summarizes the first four, that all of these blessings come because God has revealed his law. He's opened his word, and we have that too, amen? We have that today. And then Paul lists another five things. In this second set of five, uh, because he says you have these blessings, you have a mission. You have a mission in the world, and this is what you're to be, he says, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth and all these things. They were, they were God's call to them as God's people to share God's glory and to share God's goodness with all the nations. And again, you need to read this and understand all of this is good. All of this is, is, is excellent. But the problem is that the people in Israel, sometimes like us, enjoyed all these blessings and allowed them to become these status symbols of their own self-righteousness. And in verse 21, Paul's tone shifts dramatically. He says, you claim to know the truth and teach it, but do you not teach yourself? Paul says, you don't practice what you preach, right? Right? You don't practice what you preach. He says, when you look at your heart and you get honest about your motives, don't you often do the very things that you are telling other people not to do? You say don't steal, but there are plenty of examples from your life where you take things that don't really belong to you. You say don't commit adultery, but you sexually fantasize about people you're not married to. You say you abhor idols, but you rob temples. And he, I don't think he means that they break into the temples and steal the idols and stuff like that. I think he's doing with this commandment what Jesus did with adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus extends the outward command uh, beyond that toward inward motivations of the heart. And we know that idol worship is more than just physically bowing down to a statue. The reason that pagan people bowed down before idols is they think the idol is gonna give them prosperity always the case. 
And as a religious person, you may not bow down to a statue, but you worship prosperity just like they do. You crave money and power and respect just like they do. You may not worship the idol, but you, you want what it is in the temple. You want what the idol promises just like they do. And you can see that in your life. Anytime you find yourself worrying about money and seeking money as a means to find satisfaction and refusing to be generous with money and and, and give it away, and when you complain to God because he's not giving you enough money, you get mad at God because he hasn't come through and kept his end of the bargain, giving you what you want. In other words, you are using religion to get things from God instead of getting more of God. And Paul says, people like us, we do that. We don't practice what we preach. The result, if you look at verses 23 and 24, Paul says, you dishonor the name of God. And he says, really, people look at you, and you need to ask yourself this about yourself. If people look at you, is this what they see? Paul says, all the Gentiles All the unchurched people, they can see that under this thin veneer of religion that you have the same corrupt heart as anyone else. And isn't it the case that sometimes religion just makes you worse? He says people blaspheme God because of you. They dislike, they disrespect the God that you claim to represent. That final paragraph, verses 25 to 29 says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, that's kind of awkward, right? (laughs) Circumcision, everybody's favorite topic. And uh, you may have noticed, 10 times Paul uses a word about that. Let me try to explain um, Circumcision was the outward sign of the Jewish covenant. And there's a lot of reasons scholars think about why that would be the case. Maybe it was in those days before modern standards of cleanliness, uh, not being circumcised could let in a lot of disease. And so circumcision was removing a source of filthiness at the very point of new, new life. And uh, that's all I've got to say about that. If you want to know more about circumcision, you can go to the life groups table out in the lobby after, after service. Chris Martinez has invited everyone to come and ask him. But it was circumcision an important sign of what God wanted to do in their hearts. It was a sign of removing filth and corruption at the core of our life. And if you want to get an analogy in our day, We could replace circumcision here with baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of the inward covenant. Your body gets washed with water, depicting the cleansing of your heart. It's like you're being buried and you're being brought back to life, a new life. A symbol of what's happening inside you is happening outside you. You're coming into spiritual life. So when you're baptized and, and your body is buried in water, after that's happened... 
does your life actually so, show signs of that reality that you've been cleansed? And, and Paul would say, if no one can look at you and see signs of spiritual life that God has made you different, could it be that you haven't been born again? Paul is basically saying, beware of religious inoculations. He said this, I would say this is one of the most important concepts for those of you who have grown up in church. You know, an inoculation gives you a, a dead version of the disease so that you develop antibodies and when you're exposed to the real thing, you have something to fight against it. And to quote one commentator about this, it is possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to but do not make any internal difference. There is an intellectual grasp of the gospel but no internal revolution. See, Paul's point is religion cannot change you. Only the gospel can and we must embrace that gospel in our hearts. Some of you know the name Christian Bernard. Uh, he was the first doctor a number of decades ago to perform heart transplant. And the second time that he did a heart transplant, the patient, the recipient, wanted, wanted to see his old heart. And Dr. Bernard took him over to a cupboard. He got out a jar where the heart was. And he, this is the first guy in the like, history of the world to hold his own heart in his hands. And he's looking at this heart in, his, in this jar, and uh, according to the story, after he looks at it a while, kind of turns it around, he says, so this is what was giving me so much trouble. And then he handed the jar with the heart back to the doctor, and he turned away, and he left that old heart behind forever. See, that's what Paul is encouraging us to do to realize we need a new heart and to embrace the gospel deep in our soul so that God gives us that new heart. And so that's the question. Have you embraced the gospel in your heart? Not have you been baptized? Not do you go to church? Not are you a member of the church? Not even have you prayed a prayer? But has the gospel traveled that like 18 inches between your head and your heart? I want us to end with... Paul's admonition to the religious because this chapter, as harsh and as dark and maybe as hard as it has been to listen to, really is good news. This may have seemed like a harsh message, but I wanna tell you, it is not because there's a word in this chapter, we've already read it, but I want you to see it again. Paul says, I think, to the religious, to the good person, to the moral person, to the person who's grown up in church, he says this, it's back in verse four. Do you remember verse four? He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, like letting you grow up in church, letting you have a Bible to read his word, letting you listen to messages from the Bible, that was kindness to you. And he says, forbearance and patience. Do you realize God could have punished you many times, but he hasn't, he didn't. He put you in a place where you could hear the truth and you could turn around. He says, not knowing that God's kindness, that kindness, all of that is meant to lead you to repentance. See, the reason God has done everything he has done for you is because he loves you. He's so kind. He's so patient. And he is waiting 
for us to leave our sin behind wherever it is still in our lives. He is waiting for us to turn to him. See, God's word to you today is not condemnation. It is mercy. It is kindness. See, the father gave his son for you so that you could be brought into him. And Paul has been saying it throughout these two chapters. He's gonna keep saying it, hopefully until we get it. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us needs to repent. Some of us just look on the outside like we might not need to repent, but we do. God knows our hearts. Good news for that is God is ready to receive you if you'll come. God is ready to forgive you if you'll just ask. God is ready And he receives everyone the same, whether you're a pagan or a Jew, Gentile or Jew, irreligious or religious. We all have to come, and we all come one way, and that way is through the cross. That way is through Jesus' death. We all have to repent and believe. And so I just want to ask you, Southwinds, will you today, as you have heard the word of God, will you ask the Holy Spirit of God to speak the truth of God to your heart? And will you listen? And where you need to repent, will you repent? And will you allow God to cleanse you? And will you become that new person that he has made you to be? God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. God is good. Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we we thank you today that you are so very kind and so very patient with us. Lord, whether we are already part of your family or whether we're here today kind of on the outside looking in, wondering if we want to be part of your family. Wherever we are, Lord, may we see and feel your kindness. And may your kindness lead us to repentance. We pray these things now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said,